The scripture reading for today's uh, sermon comes from Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Janelle. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Pastor Rich, just one of the pastors here at Risen. You know, it's good to see you all here today on Christmas Sunday. Um, and uh, it's always good to sort of end the year as a church family, you know, and, and celebrate Christmas together, uh, the real meaning of Christmas, right? <laughs> and so, you know, um, if you're new, if you're visiting us for the first time, I want to welcome you to our church. You know, I'm so glad that you can close out your year with us. You know, it's been another challenging year um, but by God's grace and his will, we are, we are still here, you know. Um, and so I'm going to preach the gospel, and we're going to worship Jesus. And uh, so far in this Advent season, uh, we've been looking at the different transcendent names of Jesus from the book of Isaiah. We've looked at the name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and today we're going to take a look at the name Prince of Peace. Uh, there are just two points for us today. So first, we're going to take a look at our first point, governments and kingdoms, and then second, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Now, you know, Isaiah chapter 9 uh, is the most popular Old Testament text to preach during the Advent season, right? Outside of the birth narratives of the Gospels, this is the go-to text for churches during this season. Verse 6 says, uh, you know, a child to us is born, a son to us is given. This is the only place in the Old Testament that prophesies of this child king. But uh, if you read Isaiah 9 more carefully, you're going to realize something else. Uh, this is a highly politicized passage, isn't it? <laughs> right? So Merry Christmas. We're going to talk about politics a little bit today, okay? Um, Trust me, I didn't plan this. You know, I've actually planned very little in my life, and God just keeps making me do things. Uh, you know, whenever I choose a text and I study it, you know, uh, things always pop up that I don't initially expect. You know, for example, 
the politically charged words and language in this passage. Um, so maybe this will not be our church's most popular Christmas text anymore. But, uh, you know, I think it's always tricky. I'm, 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 you know, I'm sitting here sermon prepping, and I'm, I'm trying to think about how to do this. And, you know, I think it's always tricky for a pastor, right, to, to on the one hand, not avoid any kind of cultural relevance or political engagement whatsoever. You know, it's, it's always tricky for a pastor. You know, you don't want to avoid getting in the ring at all and, and discussing politics. You know, you got you to gotta get in there sometimes and you know, get a little dirty. You know, the word politics, it, it actually just comes from the Greek word polis, which just means society. So the substance of politics is how to live in society. That's all it is. So politics is a huge part of life, whether we acknowledge it or we take it for granted. And if someone asks me what the Bible says about this or that, as a pastor, I have to answer. Right? <laughs> I can't just go to the bathroom or you know, uh, look at my phone. It's a part of my calling. It's, it's not uh, the only part. Uh, I have to be informed, of course, and biblically objective and read the room at times, but this is something I got to do, whether I like it or not. It's part of the job. And if you read the Bible, you know that the prophets and Jesus and his disciples, they occasionally would get into the public square at times also. It generally didn't end well for them, though. You know, um, Jesus died. <laughs> John the Baptist died. Uh, all the 12 disciples, besides one, John, who got exiled to Patmos, all died for their very public faith. Uh, because back then, they didn't have the freedom of speech that you and I have here. On the other hand, Pastor, you don't want to politicize everything. You know, we shouldn't. We're not politicians, lobbyists. We're not legislators. Uh, we're not the experts. And so with that being said, you know, when I, when I come to this text, um, at the end of the day, you know, I, I come very humbly, and I'm going to do my best to do justice here. You know, I've got 30 minutes, probably not enough time, but, you know, here it goes. And, you know, verse 3, what does it say here? It says, you have multiplied the nation. Uh, what is Isaiah talking about? It's talking about the nation Israel. Okay? Verse 4, what does it say? The rod of our oppressor you have broken. What's Israel talking about? Israel's talking about all the oppressors, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, that have ruled over them and have tyrannized them. But what does verse 6 say? It says, the government of this nation will be on this child's shoulder. Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government. Right, this is literal government. And of peace. This government is going to have peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Right? That's the language. And so what this text seems to be talking about is a future king that will bring joy to Israel by defending them from all of their oppressors and establish peace and justice and righteousness for them forever. That's what this passage is talking about. This is what the people of Israel were expecting at the time of Jesus because they were under the rule of Rome. You know, they were heavily taxed, but they, they weren't Roman citizens. Their land and their property and their rights and privilege could be dispossessed by the Roman Empire at any moment without cause. 
They could be arrested and imprisoned without due trial and justice. And so when Isaiah wrote this, and when the Israelites were reading this from, for 700 years, from when Isaiah wrote this to the rule of Assyria, to Jesus' day, to the rule of Rome, this was their context. You know, that very uh, famous Christmas carol you all know, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We love that hymn. Mariah Carey sings that hymn. But you know the very first lines? It says this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. So when, when an Israelite would read this part of the uh, scroll of Isaiah, because they didn't have books back then, they had scrolls, they would long for the day when they would be freed from this dark captivity. And so when the angels came to Mary and Joseph and they say to them in Luke chapter 2, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. They're quoting Isaiah, who is Christ the Lord. Do you know what Mary and Joseph are thinking? They're thinking, our son is going to be the future king. And actually, everyone who joined Jesus, including his 12 disciples, they expected this. Um, in the book of Mark, uh, James and John, two of the disciples, the sons of Zebedee, they're, they're also nicknamed the sons of thunder because they're so thunderous in personality and craved power. <laughs> uh, they say this, teacher, we want you to do this for us, whatever we ask for, from you. Can you imagine that? Right, these guys were... Sons of thunder. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What a nice God. <laughs> he asked them. He entertains their question. And they said to him, grant us, me and my brother, one to sit on your right hand and one to sit at your left in your glory. You know what they're asking him? They're asking him, grant one of us to be the secretary of state and the other one to be the secretary of defense. Jesus and then Jesus says, you, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is slandered by a, a nearby Samaritan town, which was one of Israel's political enemies. And, and do you know what the sons of thunder do again? Okay, these uh, brothers, James and John, they, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. So you see, everyone is expecting Jesus to be this political warrior king. And then John the, and John the Baptist is arrested. He's put into prison, um, and he's Jesus' cousin. Uh, and he's arrested because he calls out King Herod at that time, the king of Israel, for taking his brother's wife. Yes, you heard me correctly. Herod was not a good dude. So when John is in prison and he heard about the deeds of of the Christ, the king, right, that just means anointed one, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, hey, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, John is in prison, and he's waiting for Jesus to flip the switch, to lead the charge and bust him out, because that's, that's, that's the expectation of the time. But throughout Jesus' life, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly pushing back on this political kingship. In John chapter 6, this is what it says. A large crowd was following Jesus, 
because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now there was much grass in the place, so everyone sat down, about 5,000 in number. And then Jesus took the five loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the two fish and to as much as they wanted. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, they're like, this is the moment. There are 5,000 people here. It's time to mobilize and it is time to take Israel back. What does Jesus do? He withdrew to the mountain by himself. Striking, isn't it? probably really confusing for the Israelites. They're like, Jesus, stop teasing us. What's going on here? Is Jesus playing hard to get it? Is he just getting cold feet? No. Because when you read the Gospels and you follow Jesus' life, Jesus constantly is redirecting everyone to the fact that he is something just, something more than just a temporal political prospect. That's what he, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm more than just a temporal political candidate he's like he's saying I'm, I'm, I'm something so much greater you have no idea you don't know the kind of spiritual and cosmic deliverance i'm going to bring and eventually a future perfect kingdom where my righteousness and my justice and my peace will never end in other words behind all the pain and evil and sin in the world jesus knew that there was a greater oppressor as 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 Man, as brutal as the Roman Empire was, Jesus knew that there was a greater oppressor who, needed to bring, who he needed to bring to justice. You know, a friend of mine uh, who has experienced tremendous oppression because of his race, he told me something I'll never forget. You know, I have really bad memory if you, if you know me at all. It's terrible. You know, things need to be written down, okay? <laughs> um, but he told me something I never, I'll never forget, you know, um, because I, I've experienced racism, I've, I've experienced discrimination and, you know, uh, bullying and, and some kind of violence, but, but not like a life-threatening, uh, life-taking sort of kind of oppression that others experience and, and have experienced. And, but my, what my friend said to me was this, you know, he said to me this because he's experienced much more than I have. And he said, Rich, as a minister and representative of God, you have to speak to the world's oppressive experiences you know like you have to have to and he's right that is the will of god to speak to as you can see israel's captive experience people's captive experience and whenever i i see or hear of oppression i mean it's 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 like I, I, I read the news just enough to know what's going on. Because if I read it too much, I'm like depressed. You know, I'm like, what is going on? It gets worse and worse. Like the link I click, it's just worse. <laughs> but whether it's here or abroad, whether it's my people or another people group, you know, whenever I read of it or see it, man, it just, it just, it just, it, I don't even notice it, but emotionally just rocks my day. You know, Jen knows it. She's like, did you read something on the news? You just seem angry. And I can get so discouraged at, at what's happening. I, I get discouraged at myself because, you know, like, what, what, what am I doing? I'm a pastor, and what am I doing? What am I doing in my life? That's what I think. I'm a little hard on myself, but that, that's, that's what's going through my mind. And it's not like our church can stop all the evil in the world, right? 
on, on this side of heaven, sin can never be fully eradicated. You know, God curbs it with death. That's what he does. But maybe some of you are in a position of influence and power to do good, like Joseph, right, in the Old Testament, like Daniel, like Esther, Queen Esther. But most of us, we probably can make a difference where we are, with individuals, with real people in our communities, in our neighborhood. We can do some real good here. And friends, that's, that's God's calling for us, right? You know, we like to talk about sort of these cosmic scale things and talk about what's happening over there and, and what's going wrong over here, but, but, but we're never really engaging where we are, right here. Where, where our feet are. I read this book uh, the other day. It's called Live Where Your Feet Are, right? I think one of the things uh, in, in our compassion and justice ministry, I think that's what we're trying to do. You know, and, and one of the things that I'm grateful for is, is, as Harry mentioned, that we're in a position to give away 10% of our budget. I remember, uh, 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 like, dreaming about this church plan. I was in seminary, right, just eating bagels all day, um, and I told God, you know, like, you know, I, I believe he's calling me to plant a church in the Bay Area because the Bay Area doesn't have many healthy churches. And I said, hey, if this ever gets off the ground, you know, um, we're going to give 10% away, right? Um, no ifs or buts, that, that's, that's how it's going to be. That's how it's going to be. And then God made it a reality. Right? It's, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And out of everything, this is that, 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 that line item in our budget, that is one of my proudest moments as a pastor. More than our launch service, our anniversaries, you know, um, our, you know like that 10% that we give away that's in our life, that, that tells us who we are. And you, you should be proud of it too. Not like an arrogant, narcissistic pride. Then you would be a Pharisee, right? Don't be that. Okay, don't be like, ah, look how much our church gives away. No, don't do that, okay? Uh, but a humble sort of awestruck pride because at the end of the day, we are not doing this, right? It's, it's God who's doing it. He's the one who's given us this. He's the one who's blessing us. This is the original Abrahamic promise to bless us, to be a blessing. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness when we step out in faith and obey him. That's what we can be proud of. But... You know, the unique difference with Jesus is that when he uh, is addressing the injustice in the world, when you read him in his life in the Gospels, and the, the difference between Jesus and sort of other uh, kings and political leaders that are trying to do what Jesus is doing, um, he does address the individuals. He does address the circumstances, right? He addresses the Pharisees. He addresses their, uh, their um, hearts that are far from him. He even addresses King Herod at one point. But the difference between Jesus and other leaders is that he doesn't stop there because he knows that there is a greater oppressor at play. In John chapter 8, Jesus refers to the devil. He says, you know, he rebukes the Pharisees, and then now he's rebuking the devil. He says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
Now, I know that when I mention this word, the devil, right, it's like, oh, the devil, like, you know, it, was, it reminds me of that one scene, I think, from the movie Waterboy, right, <laughs> where, where everything is the devil, <laughs> it's always the devil, you know, oh, I can't find a parking spot, the devil, he's out to get me today. Um, we kind of make fun of the devil uh, in our Western world. And, and we don't really have a category for him because, you know, ever since the Enlightenment, um, you know, sort of human reason and uh, modern achievement, uh, because of all those things, we haven't thought too thoroughly about spirituality, about God, about evil, uh, that past cultures had espoused. Andrew Delbanco, he's a, he's a professor at Columbia um, he's not a Christian. He was awarded America's Best uh, Critic. Can you, oh, that'd be so awesome. You know, they give awards out for people who, who criticize the best. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's, his, that, that, that's what he's known for, being the best critic in America. Okay? But he wrote a book, and it's called The Death of Satan. And this is what he writes. He says, One of the outcomes in overlooking the Christian Bible has been the result of attributing human evil solely to, so, to social upbringing, circumstantial conditions, and psychological treatment. While these factors do play into human actions, these insights do not alone serve to be a sufficient explanation for suffering and destructive human behavior. Therefore, there must be room to consider a more honest way of understanding pain, suffering, brokenness, and immoral impulse. Right, that's what Andrew DeBlanco is saying. He's saying, he's, I've read all the books on psychology, I've read all the books on philosophy and religion and sociology, and, and what we have attributed evil to, no, it doesn't make any sense. He says, there are people who are raised in good families, who have, who have raised in families with good values, and they also become murderers. And, and what the Bible is saying is that this, this spiritual struggle between good and evil, the sin that we see in our hearts, the sin that we see in the world, the Bible says that this is due to the spiritual force of sin and the devil. That's what the Bible says. So this is the greater oppressor at play, right? And in this Advent season, in this Christmas season, what is the real meaning of Christmas? You know? It's, it's hard, you know, like I'm at home and I'm, I'm decorating the Christmas tree, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm getting a, you know, a gingerbread latte, I'm listening to the Justin Bieber Christmas album, and, but, but, but that is not the real meaning of Christmas, okay? That is not going to stop death. That is not going to stop the people who are still being oppressed in this Christmas season. How does Jesus approach the brokenness in this world? Brings us to the second point. In our text today, the prophet Isaiah calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. And the Hebrew word for prince uh, is nashir, but the Hebrew word used in our text today uh, is actually shar, which means ruler. So it's interesting that they call it Prince of Peace. Maybe it's an alliteration of words, but it's really ruler of peace. And this is why it's important, because Jesus is not just a prince whose personality is charactered by peace. Uh, you know, he had a peaceful demeanor. That, that's not what it's saying. What, what it's saying is Jesus will rule by peace. He will administer, he will make sure that there is peace. 
He will make decisions for peace and in peace. His entire governmental rule and kingdom will be dictated by their principle and practice of peace. That's what this title was saying. You know, back in the day, you know, when they had Roman guards and Roman, you know, uh, you know consuls, they ruled with the rod. They ruled harshly, severely, with fear. But what our text is saying today, Jesus will not rule like that. He will rule with peace. There are two reasons for this. First, it's not because Jesus doesn't understand the severity of oppression. He deeply understands. If you know Jesus' stories, his family had to flee Israel to Egypt because King Herod killed many newborns trying to snuff out this future prophetic king that Isaiah was talking about because he was worried that this king, this child, would rise to power and threaten his lineage. Jesus and his family had to flee Israel to Egypt. And we know, of course, that Jesus innocently dies on the cross at the hand of his oppressors. So Jesus knows deeply the pain and tragedy of oppression. But listen to this. As Jesus was being crucified on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I cannot comprehend this, you know? Um, I cannot imagine being innocently attacked and being empathetic for the attacker. That's what, that's what Jesus is expressing here. I, I don't think any one of us could do this. I don't even really expect it. Sometimes you see it, right, in the news, and you see these amazing testimonies of families standing up in court saying, I forgive you. I cannot imagine the scene of Jesus' trial and his flogging and crucifixion. Actually, actually, one of the criminals, um, and I have this behind me, uh, one of the criminal, criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, and he said to him, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. In other words, this, this guy is saying, Aren't you God? Can't you stop this? Why don't you stop this? And then the other that was also crucified with, with Jesus said to the other person, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man, this man has done nothing wrong. So what is happening in this scene? Well, here's what's happening. Jesus the innocent, is being identified with these two guilty men. But we know from reading the rest of the scriptures that Jesus does not just identify with these two guilty men. Jesus identifies with all human beings in the world who are not without guilt or mistake or regret. Not before just a judge of the state, but before the eternal judge of the entire universe. That's what this crucifixion is Symbolizing. So what Jesus is doing on the cross he is bringing peace between us and in the eternal courtroom of God. And for all those who place their faith in the sentence of Jesus' death on the cross for your sin, like these two guilty men on the cross, you are Acquitted. 
not just of your biggest sin or your most recent sin, for every single one, past, present, and the ones you don't even know you're going to commit. It's unbelievable. You know, I have a very difficult time believing that this has no meaning to to us at all. This is the kind of eternal peace that Jesus brings. It's incomprehensible. And second, from this cosmic and supernatural, otherworldly kind of peace. Imagine that kind of peace. Imagine that kind of peace that you had with, you know, your spouse, your mom and dad, your kids. You know, I'm going to act in peace and in forgiveness for every single sin that you do. My grace is going to be so powerful. It's going to be more than justice. It's going to be more than words of condemnation. It will be so powerful, it's going to change your heart. That's what Jesus is doing. And so from this place, friends, as Christians and as a church, we have the greatest reason to be peacemakers in the world. And, and, and not in the way that I say where you're passively peaceful, like, oh, like, uh, right? Like, that's not being a peacemaker. That's called being a peace faker, all right? <laughs> but well, you know what peacemakers do? They don't run away from conflict. They, they run right into it. That's the only way to accomplish peace. Peace assumes conflict, so you have to run into it. You know, it's not a la-di-da sort of undisruptive, avoiding kind of peacemaking. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus went straight into the conflict, straight into sin, straight into death, straight onto the cross. And he did it without violence, without vengeance. He didn't destroy us. I mean, the fact that he, his forgiveness is, is available for even the most heinous sin. I mean, that's shocking, isn't it? But if there is a sincere repentance... They are forgiven too. That is the law of God's court. Because Jesus' death is that powerful. It's that powerful. And this is why he's called the Prince of Peace. Because he found a way to uphold justice by not destroying the world, but taking the world's sin upon himself. The Paul, Apostle Paul, he puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You know, I remember like when my mom and dad, and I, I tell them I share this stuff and they really have no choice anyways, but um, they were having a huge fight just like a year ago. And, you know, it was, you know, I thought it could be the end. And I'm sitting there with my mom and I'm listening to her and I'm listening to her pain and her anger 
and her bitterness. Bitterness. And I said, Mom, if you believe in Jesus, he himself is your peace. And she just broke down. Her, her heart was, was blown open with the grace and the forgiveness of God in that moment. The dividing wall of hostility was brought down and met by the Spirit's power. So that Jesus can create in himself one new person in place of the divided two, making peace that he might reconcile us all to God in one body through What, in, in short, this, 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 this passage is saying that Jesus is, by his supernatural humility, he is the bigger person. That's what it says. That's what it means to be the Prince of Peace. He is the biggest person. I was talking to a church leader the other day about sort of her frustrations with some folk at her church about uh, them not meeting her expectations. And, you know, I was, I was listening for a while, and after, I told her, you know, as a leader, one of the burdens of being a leader is, is being the bigger person. It's being a person of peace. Have you ever uh, been part of a team where your leader is, is not a, a bigger person? Everyone else has to always be the bigger person. No one wants to follow that, right? <laughs> Why do I always have to be the bigger person here? You know what I'm saying? Aren't you the leader? That's not how leadership works. As a leader, you must strive to be the most courageous person in the room and the most humblest person in the room. That's how leadership works. There's no ego in leader or uh, ego in leader. And before I got ordained, um, my mentor, he said, give me your hand. And I said, what is he said? And he went like this, boom. What did he just do? He said, you're going to be cleaning toilets from now on. That's what leaders do. Figuratively and literally. He was actually lit. I had to clean a bathroom as an intern. <laughs> Nothing is ever below you. If, you, if peace is uh, above you, if that is the goal, then nothing is ever below you to accomplish that peace. Your ego cannot get in the way of that peace. Just look at Jesus, the God himself, the greatest leader of the entire world that the world has ever seen, and he had the courage of a lion, but he had the sacrifice and the humility of a lamb. And so you see, when, when the Bible says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it says that Jesus, only the leadership of Jesus, the humility of the cross, can give us this kind of spirit and grace, this kind of culture and power to bring about a supernatural peace in your midst. In your personal life, in your heart, between you and God, in your relationships, in this church, in our relationship with those in the world. That's what this prophecy is talking about. Something greater than temporal, political, For to us a child is born, to 
to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And one day, because of Jesus, because of the Prince of Peace, friends, you and I, we have hope. We don't know when that day will be, but one day, because the Bible says that it's God's patience, not wishing that any should perish without being reconciled to him. So God is being patient, but we long for that day when we will experience this government, the perfect government, the perfect peace with justice and righteousness. Gracious, we come before you and I confess that I, I never know what, what you're going to do. You're the wonderful counselor. And we come before you and every single one of us have our own um, joys that we're experiencing in this season and and. and and our own sorrows that we're experiencing. Some, some, maybe for some of us right now, the joy is, is, is bigger than the sorrow, but maybe for some of us, the sorrow is bigger than the joy. But you know. And you love us all individually. You are our everlasting Father who will never leave, who loves us perfectly. And today, as we celebrate this Advent season, while there is so much festive joy and there's, you know, rest and vacation, it's, it's, it's awesome. There's family and there's food and friends, Father. We know that, that, that still there is this nagging sense of insecurity that only you can address. thankful that you have forgiven us and that you have secured our body and soul for all of eternity, not because of anything we've done. We don't sit here because we're such good people. We sit here only by the blood of Christ. We can open our mouths and sing as loudly as we want to, not because of anything we've done, but because purely Jesus makes us worthy. beautiful and incomprehensible. But I pray that today you would make it a reality for us to experience again. That your power would come down and open the eyes of our hearts to see what our physical eyes cannot see. Open the deep cavity of our soul and soften us with your peace. Father, would you rule over us with your peace, in peace, for peace. Pray this. In Jesus' name, the Prince of Peace. Amen.